Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to Season 2 of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives, and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking with Christine Bailey. Christine is an award-winning nutritional therapist, chef, and author. With over 18 years of experience and passion for cooking, she has a reputation for changing people's health through the love of real food. I first met Christine at a supper club at the Willow in London, and I was thrilled to get her on the show. So, without further ado, Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. It's lovely to be here. So, Christine, most people have a story as to why they kind of got into this health space. What's yours? Wow, that's interesting. It's quite a complicated one. But essentially, I was trained as a scientist. I was trained in environmental sciences, ecology, agriculture. So I was very aware of food, nutrition, and so on. Um, But uh, I was actually involved in a life-saving operation. I was, at the time, I was pregnant, uh, 28 weeks pregnant, actually, and everything seemed to be going well. But it actually turned out that I had a genetic um, issue, uh, which meant that my bowel twisted and went Mm -hmm. gangrenous. So they rushed me in. uh, Mm -hmm. They had to remove most of my bowel. And they also uh, had to uh, deliver my son at 28 weeks. Now, fortunately, that was obviously sort of 19, 20 years ago. He's absolutely fine. He's at uni doing really well. Um, But as a result of that, uh, I then obviously had issues with my own health, which I'd never had before. And it led me down a path of a lot of functional medicine testing, uh, a lot of investigations, diagnosis of celiac. um, And with my science background, I was very keen to make sure that I was researching everything. Um, Yes. So after that, obviously, I trained uh, trained in nutrition, degree, um, trained as a chef as well, because one of the things I really found out was when I was seeing clients after qualifying, a lot of people wouldn't be able to put that into an actual practical application. So, yes. okay, I know the theory, but what do I eat today? What mm-hmm. do I give my family? Um, and then I've um, been very lucky. I've had twins as well, but one of them had a, an autoimmune disease linked to celiac. Um, and again, it's sort of it was quite a rare condition, and it, it baffled a lot of the experts. Um, so me being me doing all the research, looked into the links with gluten, cross-reactivity foods, and we removed gluten and dairy from his diet. And within two weeks, his autoimmune condition was reversed. Wow. And that was that was at the age of about two or three. And yes. you can imagine that if I hadn't have done that, and he had been taking the steroids or whatever that he was offered, um, and he could still be on that. He's now 14 years old and he's a healthy boy. Um, and again, so for me, 
Um, that's also why I'm very involved in children's health, teenagers' health. Um, obviously, I see clients for all sorts of conditions, but that's an area where it's so important to ensure that we nourish them from as early as possible um, because we now know that what we give our children, even actually before they are born, can affect a lot of their health outcomes later on, which is quite a scary thought, really, as a parent. Um, but that's the way the research is now showing us. I think you touched upon a really good point there when you said that, you know, people don't know how to prepare prepare healthy foods. And even though that they know that they should eat healthy, if they don't know how to prepare these foods, how are they possible able possibly able to implement that? at home with their family yeah yeah um, and that's a very that's a very good point because also you will find that a lot of parents may be and obviously i work a lot in allergies and intolerances but a lot of parents may actually be catering for two or three different types of diets yes that that makes it harder even still you know and then you're rushed you're you may be working you may have to get the kids off to various you know activities and so on um, you know, it's all very well having all these cooking programs, but actually the reality is for a lot of people, time is very short and they have to make quick decisions about, well, what are we going to eat tonight? Mm -hmm. In your household, for example, have you got different dietary patterns which you have to accommodate with or does everyone eat a similar thing? Yeah, that's a very good question because mm -hmm. actually it is quite varied. We're all gluten-free at home. Yes. Um, because obviously um, with celiac, you have to be very careful um, to avoid any cross-contamination. And and I find this with a lot of parents. If you've got a serious either autoimmune condition like celiac or an allergy, sometimes it's actually better to exclude that offending food from mm -hmm. the household. That's very true when you've got an anaphylactic child with peanuts or nuts or something uh, but one of my children um, one of my twins is is a vegan <laughs> that's his choice uh, the other one loves his meat so we do have a few um, recipes I would say that I effectively double up and then I batch cook one which is vegan and then I might add meat to another most of the time we actually eat the same thing so we're eating a lot of vegetarian vegan food yes uh, which suits everyone and everyone's quite happy with that but it just goes to show that, you know, it's not necessarily straightforward as just serving one meal. And that's very true when you've got children, um, whether they're fussy eaters or they've, they've got some sort of allergy. Now, you are uniquely qualified in nutrition, but you're renowned for your passion in, in food and culinary skills, really. What came first, the love of nutrition or the love of cooking? Oh, food. Food. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I was very, very fortunate. I was brought up um, with a northern family. I may not sound northern, but my parents were northern. Uh, very much cooking everything from scratch, having an allotment. Uh, you know, my grandparents were, um, they were, one was a vicar, vicar's wife, so they were always in the kitchen. So from as soon as I could, I was, I was cooking. Um, and uh, as my mum also worked, she was uh, a very successful solicitor, I would often cook the evening meals as well. So um, for me, it was my passion from a very early age, and it, you know, that, that took me all the way through um, my first degree, my master's and so on. And then I thought, you know what, I actually need to get a professional qualification in this <laughs> now. Um, and so that's always been in the background. Um, and then the nutrition, obviously, through life experiences and also my love of, 
of science really and and also the environment so that was my first degree and so it's interesting that now everything seems to be very tying up with sustainability where is our food coming from where where are we sourcing it what about the air miles uh, what are we feeding the animals if we're eating meat mm-hmm. um, you know all of that is so crucial um, to what I'm about but also as far as I can tell you know getting the right nutrients in your diet getting the optimal nutrients that we want yes and i'll definitely touch upon that a little bit later but first i just want to ask you about a couple of questions from your latest book my kids can't eat that um can you shed light on what a lot of parents with young and old kids may want to know which is how do i get my kids to eat vegetables (laughs) (laughs) well that really starts from day one, I think. I think, um, obviously, one of the things I do touch upon in the book is how when you are pregnant, uh, what you eat will actually influence the health outcome of your baby and also their immune system. And that's not necessarily saying that if you eat broccoli when you're pregnant, your child is going to love broccoli. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just goes to show you that what you choose to eat when you're pregnant is actually really important. Then yes. moving on from that, we, we obviously encourage children to be weaned um, anything from four to six months, um, ideally being breastfed at the same time. And really, vegetables should be one of the first things we get in their diet. And if, if we can consistently do that, then it can, it's not always successful, but it can be very useful. We have what's called genetic uh, variations, which means some people are bitter tasters and some people may not be. Um, and that means that some people will naturally have more of an aversion to perhaps more of the bitter greens like the broccolis and the kale and so on than others. But mm-hmm. it's, consi- it's, it's being consistent and also um, being consistent with your diet as well. So to give you a classic example, there's no point sitting with your toddler asking them to eat their peas or whatever. And you're sitting there with a chocolate bar. Just doesn't work. Yes. They will see what you are eating. So even if you're not eating with your children, they will still pick up what you grab from the supermarket, what you're eating in the car. Um, and so, you know, we have to lead by example as well. But it's consistency, but also variety. So don't get overly obsessed with they don't eat like broccoli. That's fine. If they like cauliflower, if they like peas, if they like sweet corn, if they like, you know, chewing on something raw rather than cooked, that's great too. Yes. So don't always get so worried that there's one particular vegetable that they don't eat. That doesn't matter. There's probably everyone can say there's actually one or two food, fruits or vegetables that they don't actually like. That's fine, as long as you are getting variety. So if you, if you, you know, are sort of given up on, you know, broccoli, try something else. Um, and then remember that it's worth reintroducing it at another time as well, um, so that a lot of children will be fussy for a few months and then they'll be happy with whatever you're giving them. And um, some of them like it raw, some of them like it roasted, some of them like them steamed. So again, try lots of variety as well, because that can be very useful. Yes, I completely agree. And you touched on upon a really good point there. I would taste preferences when from when you were younger to an adult, they do change. I remember not mm. liking mushrooms, thinking they, they were like slugs. And now I love them. I eat them all the time. So maybe just for some people, it's just that kind of, it just takes time. Yes, it does take time. And also um, peer pressure. Don't underestimate peer pressure. (laughs) Yes, so I run the Free From Awards, which are the Free From Food Awards, which are held every year. 
And these awards, uh, we judge loads of different types of allergy-free food. But we have one category, which is called um, the food for children. I mean, it's not saying that children need special food, but it's food that children might like, you know, their packed lunches and so on. And that's actually judged at my house, but it's judged by children with allergies. And what I find so interesting is that we'll have a whole room of children, and some of them won't know each other, um, but because some of them are tucking into perhaps a new food that they've never tried, so will the others. And it's really interesting to see the, the role of peer pressure with, with particularly young children. If, if you've got a very enthusiastic eater sitting next to one that's not so keen, it can make a dramatic difference. Yes. So, invite, so invite friends round that you know eat well, because that could help as well. Okay, an excellent piece of advice. Now, you've spoken in the past about various different responses to food that both children and adults may be prone to. And I know jargon gets thrown about a lot in in the nutrition space and it can become very confusing for the public. So when it comes to food, what are the differences between an intolerance, a sensitivity and an allergy? Yeah, very good question. I mean, effectively, let's just define what a food allergy is. So. Yes. In, in basic terms, a food allergy is simply an overreaction of our immune system to a food that in non-allergic people would be seen as harmless. So it's effectively your immune system is responding aggressively to something that really it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. It should see it as totally harmless. That's an immune reaction. Now, um, without getting too complicated, it involves a range of immune cells. Some of those are called T lymphocytes. Um, and they are very much involved with, you know, protecting us from invading pathogens. And that will also include external pathogens that may or may not be pathogens. So it could include food that we are eating. Um, now, as a result of that immune response, we then have a whole trigger of various cytokines, which will be produced, which will then um, cause a, a range of potential symptoms as a result of effectively producing an antibody to target that food which it sees as something that should be destroyed. Now what it will do is as a result of producing those antibodies um, it will promote inflammation and it will promote a range of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now in a true allergy um, and this is really where I think a lot of people get very confused a true allergy is called an IgE mediated food allergy. That's the, the, the normal term. Mm-hmm. What this means is we are producing IgE antibodies, and children that are prone to those um, may also have other conditions associated with them, atopic conditions like eczema, asthma, allergic rhinitis. Right. Now, these will be immediate reactions to a food. So, normally after eating, within the sort of 10, 20 minutes, you will see some sort of symptom. Now, with some children, it will be, I feel itchy all over. I might have a funny taste in my mouth. I might start having a rash over my body. I might start wheezing. I might choke. I might be breathless. There may be difficulty swallowing. And then, of course, there can be some more serious things like faster heartbeat um, and also dizziness, lightheadedness, swelling of the mouth, swelling of the throat, and so on. And obviously, that can lead to anaphylactic and, and in some cases, death. Right. Now, that's what's called a true allergy. And you could react to any food, obviously, um, but the most common 
for a true allergy will be things like cow's milk, eggs, fish and shellfish actually, peanuts and other nuts, which are normally tree nuts, soya and wheat. Those will normally be the ones related to an IgE. So to put it in perspective, we know that around about um, true allergies affect 8% of children. Okay, um, They will account for a certain number of deaths every year. Um, and it seems to be getting worse at the moment. And we've obviously heard a lot in, in the press about that. The number of children suffering from severe nut allergies um, and other food allergies has actually tripled in the last 10 years. So this is an increasing problem. It's not going away. It's actually getting worse. Yes. Now, that's IgE. And it's most common, I should say, in children, but quite rare in adults. You don't normally develop it later on in life. You normally develop it early in life. Um, and with certain allergies, you can grow out of them. So if it's a milk or egg allergy, around about 80% of children will grow out of those. But that's not true with peanut allergies. So roughly only 20% will grow out of a peanut allergy. Now, that's the what we call the classic food allergy. We then have a group of reactions to foods which are called food sensitivities. Now these may or may not involve the immune system. There's a range of different processes that can happen. But in some cases, um, you will get a development of more antibodies, but they will be what's called IgG antibodies, not IgE. Okay. Um, and these ones take a little bit longer to um, develop in the, the bloodstream and so the symptoms tend to be more delayed or the reaction tends to be more delayed it can take anything from one to two days and this can actually make it very hard to identify the culprit food because obviously you might have eaten a whole range of foods in that sort of 24 hours um, now the symptoms are not normally life-threatening that's the big distinction uh, the symptoms can be very varied and they can affect any body system, not just, you know, feeling a bit sick or having digestive pain. And to make matters worse, they can also be linked to things like eczema, asthma, which we've already noted in IgE. So if you're um, listening and you've got eczema or asthma, well, that could be an IgG or it could be an IgE-related um, um, condition. In some cases, eczema and asthma will not be affected by any food, but in some cases it will. Right. Um, a classic example of a food sensitivity, which is now quite recognized in the medical literature, is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So that's where you are not autoimmune, but you are reacting to gluten um, and it is affecting you. And again, the symptoms can be very varied. So it might be IBS type symptoms, tummy pain, headaches, mm -hmm. migraines, fatigue. Um, it could be ear, nose and throat, you know, sinus problems. Uh, it could even be um, sleep problems and joint pain. Um, so the symptoms can be very varied. And that actually does mean it's quite difficult to identify what they are. The classic way that is normally recognized is called the elimination challenge diet, where you take out the suspected foods for a few to four weeks and then you put them back in one at a time. Now, these, these ones also may not necessarily be for life either. Um, it may well be that these type of food sensitivities are not for life at all. Um, and what we often find is that there's something else going wrong or there's other imbalances 
in the body systems, often the digestion or the immune imbalances. And it's temporarily causing your body to overreact to a food when, again, it shouldn't be. Um, so these ones may not be for life and they are not life-threatening, but they can cause a lot of ongoing pain um, and uh, fatigue in some people, headaches and digestive you know, symptoms as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So then we have food intolerances. Now, these are not involving the immune system. And actually, children are less likely to have a food intolerance because often they are more common as we get older. Um, our food intolerance um, develops when something either irritates your digestive tract or um, you actually find it hard to digest it or break it down. So a classic would be, for example, uh, lactose intolerance, where you just don't have enough of the lactase enzyme to break down the milk sugar, which is in, in dairy products, for example. You can have other ones as well, fructose intolerance, MSG, sulfites, and so on. Um, so this is not an immune response, but obviously it can affect you um, in, in very similar ways, particularly with the digestive tract. So the classic would be with a lactose intolerance is that you'd have a cup of um, milk and you would be running to the toilet, unfortunately, because you yes. just aren't developing it. Um, now, if we're talking about children in particular, they could have either or both IgE, uh, true food allergies and or food sensitivities as well. And obviously some children will have um, intolerance to um, certain foods like lactose, um, or fructose as well. Um, and uh, they can develop at any age, but often with the true food allergies, they develop in the first few years of life. Right, excellent. And you've mentioned just before what the mother eats can have a profound effects on the child's development of allergies and intolerances. How does this happen? Or what can the mother do to kind of reduce this risk? Yeah, so we now know that there's quite a few risk factors for allergies. Now, to be fair, some will have a genetic link. Um, so if you are in an atopic um, sort of family where there's a history of allergies, asthma, eczema, and so on, there is a genetic predisposition, which may mean that you are more going to be more prone to that. But what we also know is some of the risk factors for developing allergies are things like the levels of healthy bacteria, gut flora in your child's intestine, but also when you are pregnant, um, whether or not uh, you pick up um, when you're very young a in gut infection um, or have a high dose of antibiotics, um, whether you're um, born vaginally or C-section, whether yes. you're breastfed, uh, the timing of weaning, um, and also the exposure to environmental bacteria during childhood, um, you know, playing with dirt is the classic one that a lot of, um, you know, physicians will now talk about because of the hygiene philosophy. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of potential risk factors for allergies. But from a mother's perspective, if you are, for example, uh, thinking about getting pregnant and, you, and, and in particular you um, know that your family may be more prone to those sort of conditions, um, there is certain things that we can do because... We know that as the fetus is developing, it is influenced by the exposure to microbes in the womb, including the mother's own gut bacteria and the food she's eating. So what can happen is that the what we call the innate immune system, uh, which is the 
um, which is part of our immune response um, to certain pathogens, that will start developing, obviously, um, when the, um, the fetus is growing and developing. Um, and that immune system, that innate immune system, helps us to develop what we call oral tolerance. Well, that is simply whether we are going to respond to something adversely or we're not. Right. And so the mother's gut flora and what she eats can actually influence that while the baby is developing in the womb. Um, now, from a pregnancy point of view, that means you should aim to eat fermented foods um, on a regular basis, so yogurt, kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, all of those. Include as much what we call the prebiotic foods in your um, diet. So those are effectively fibers that support and encourage the growth of our beneficial bacteria. So that would be things like, you know, a lot of the tubers, um, sweet potato, yams, uh, a lot of the leafy greens, beans and pulses, oats, um, chicory, all of those sort of things, mm -hmm. which are great fiber foods. So include those when you're pregnant. Avoid medication where, wherever possible, obviously. Um, some um, women like to take a probiotic supplement as well. Um, and then um, include plenty of variety of polyphenol-rich foods, which also feed the bacteria. So that's things like berries, um, apples, which are also high in not only the polyphenols, but also pectin fiber as well. Um, these foods will actually encourage a better bacteria balance in your um, gut and that in turn can help um, support the baby's response to foods. Now the other thing which is now um, often uh, highlighted a lot is that pregnant women should not be excluding foods unless they themselves have an allergy. So it used to be the case that you were told not to eat peanuts now that is not the case. You're encouraged to eat a wide variety of foods, and that's for the simple reason that those little fragments of foods will be interacting um, with your gut flora and then obviously the fetus um, while the fetus is growing. So you don't want to exclude foods. You want the baby to have developed a tolerance to a wide range of foods. Um, so, so pregnancy can have quite an effect on your um, risk of uh, developing an allergy. I think that's such powerful information as well, because not many mothers, well, a lot of mothers may not know this information and they can prevent a lot of the intolerances and sensitivities and allergies, which, as you alluded to before, are growing in their frequency or prevalence. Yes, and obviously it's not necessarily just what the mother does during pregnancy that will um, influence the outcome. So I don't want mothers to say, well, I did all that and I've still got a child with allergies. Yes. Because there are lots of other things. And, and like you say, the, the, the number of allergies is going up. And that's one, one of the other reasons may well be other things that we then expose our children to when they are first born. So again, you may not be able to determine whether it's a vaginal birth or a C-section. Uh, breastfeeding, we know, can be very important um, in uh, reducing the risk of allergies. And, and for the simple reason that it's so rich in things like colostrum, which helps um, support the gut lining. 
uh, epithelial growth factors, immunoglobulins, probiotics, prebiotics, you know, everything that the baby needs to thrive. That's yes. why we have breast milk. Um, and it also supports something called IgA, which helps with the gut lining. Um, so we know that breast milk is very, very important. But the other thing is um, what our children are exposed to in those first few years is also important. And this is where that hygiene hypothesis comes in, um, because it's now thought that perhaps because of improved hygiene, vaccinations, our immune system is not sort of burdened with anything. And then it doesn't really know when to tell whether something is a stranger or a friend at the door. And so it will just overreact to everything because it's never really had that experience before. So it's now recommended that where possible, uh, we get our children, you know, playing outside, interacting with lots of other children who will carry lots of bugs and so on. Yes. Um, but even things like getting a pet. So it's now been shown that if a child has a pet in those first few years, in those toddler years, they're less likely to get an allergy. And children who grow up in farms, for example, are well known to have, for example, less asthma and so on. Um, then, of course, we've got the nutrients. And this is really where sort of food comes in, because any deficiency in certain key nutrients that are so important for the immune system are also important. So vitamin D. And this is interesting because we, you know, everyone now recognizes the importance of vitamin D, but it's very important in terms of the robustness of our immune system, um, as well as the health of the gut. Vitamin yes. D, vitamin A, essential fats, zinc, all of these are crucially important. And yet we know from the national dietary surveys that many of us are actually low in these nutrients. Mm -hmm. um, so again, there could be many factors involved. But as a parent, obviously, what we want to try and do is eliminate all the potential factors that we can do something about. Um, and, you know, that will potentially reduce your, your risk of your child developing an allergy. So for parents that may have allergies, or some of the common allergies like nightshades, nuts, eggs, dairy, wheat, and soy, how can they maintain adequate nutrition? Are supplements useful in this instance? So you mean if your child has one of those allergies? Or if the parent does and is pregnant, for example, if it's a pregnant oh, mother, yes, how course. would you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is that most people will be able to take a probiotic because yes. uh, you can get dairy-free versions and so on. So that would be easy. The fiber and so on, that's all easy to get in. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, obviously, you should always, if you are pregnant, you should always only supplement with a um, formula that is designed for pregnancy because right. you do not want excess levels of certain nutrients. Um, so always be looking for a supplement uh, that is designed for pregnancy. And, you know, we're, we're already recommended to take folate, for example, and vitamin D during pregnancy. Um, the essential fats you can get, um, obviously, um, as a fish oil, um, but you can also get those as an algal oil as well. Uh, so if you are allergic to fish, you can get the algal oil instead. The essential fats are very useful, not just for the um, allergic response, but also for the fetal development, the brain development in particular. So I would always be recommending a mother, regardless of the risk of allergies, 
takes an essential fat um, during um, pregnancy, for example. Um, and then generally speaking, even if you have to avoid grains like gluten and so on, um, if your diet is varied and you are rotating it as much as possible, so you're not just eating the same food day in, day out, which a lot of us do, let's face that. Yes, just for um, ease, you, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we all get lazy. We all like the same recipes that we know from week to week. Try and keep it varied because the more we can expose our children to foods that are safe for you as a pregnant woman, obviously, um, the better. Um, so um, a lot of people will be able, for example, if they are not able to um, drink dairy, have fortified um, milk alternatives like almond milk, for example, which will have calcium in, vitamin D and so on. Um, so there are a lot of good alternatives out there now. And other pro- other problem foods, I know you mentioned sulfites before, that someone might be reacting to but aren't necessarily aware to look for them? I mean, what we often find, particularly with, um, well, children and adults, actually, is that there are certain additives that can be problematic that for some people um, might increase their risk of certain symptoms. So you mentioned sulfites there. Yes. Now, what's interesting about that is that that has actually been associated uh, with asthma, which is another what we call a topic condition, for mm-hmm. example. Um, so if someone's already exhibiting a certain condition, there are certain trigger foods that we might be looking at, sulfites, MSG for, for um, asthma. With eczema, the common culprits might be egg, cow's milk, wheat, soya, and peanuts. So those might be the ones that we might sort of be looking at and saying, well, are any of those aggravating your condition? Um, and Obviously, depending on that, we can either exclude or, or do a trial elimination as a, as a result. Um, but with the sulfites, um, often the more packaged, the more processed foods you are consuming, the more likely, unfortunately, you're going to get those into the system. And therefore, that goes back to cooking from scratch and trying to avoid, you know, the packet, the, the, the flavoured um, sort of seasonings and so on, because that's often where you'll find the sulfites because it's a, it's a usual um, preservative. Yes, in, in a lot of foods and supplements, actually, without even realising. Yes, yeah. unfortunately. Now, in some cases, it is worth mentioning that um, some people will have a sensitivity to sulfite, and that's because they actually have a deficiency in a trace mineral called molybdenum. Um, so <clears throat> that's where you need to see a specialist and, you know, make sure you're getting sort of, you know, food um, testing in terms of what you're actually reacting to and whether you're actually you're low in certain um, vitamins and minerals. Um, but you can also, what I also find that a lot of people do is just for a few days, just take a food diary, just say, am I actually consuming a lot of foods high in sulfites? For example, uh, dried fruit, uh, which is often uh, preserved uh, with um, some sulfite, um, sauerkraut, um, pickled onions, you know, um, sort of fermented type foods, wine if you're an adult, obviously. But even things like bottled um, lime and lemon juice will have sulfites in. So sometimes you can actually look at what you're eating over a few days um, and almost work out, do you know what, I'm actually consuming a lot of those. Maybe that's my trigger. 
Right. Okay. Great to know. And just one question which comes up all the time, or I certainly get asked, is about skin conditions and foods. Mm. Because many skin conditions, (laughs) including eczema and acne, have been linked to certain foods that we eat. And I suffered from childhood acne myself, and I know all too well the difficulties that that can (laughs) cause. What types of food do people need to look out for when maybe themselves or their child has a skin condition? Mm. And it is worth mentioning, I mean, I've now got three teenagers and, you know, acne actually, um, all right, we associate it with teenagers, but it can strike at any age for a start. And it can have a profound effect on people's confidence and self-esteem. And, uh, you know, the old adage that it doesn't matter what you eat is actually wrong. We know from the um, the research that a high intake of certain fats and sugars um, can actually aggravate the condition because they're very inflammatory. The one food that has been associated is dairy um, with acne. And the reason for that is because it actually stimulates much more sebum. Um, and when, you're, when you have acne, you have actually an infection with a bacteria on the skin. You're developing a lot of sebum and then you get that um, bacterial infection. And that's why, you know, often one of the traditional things that would be given to you would be an antibiotic, for example. Um, Now, when you're looking at, well, does food have any um, sort of impact? Um, What dairy does is um, produce things like um, insulin growth factor, um, and that increases sebum production in the sebaceous glands, and therefore foods that are often high in the fat Um, may also do that as well. So high amounts of meat, high amounts of fatty food, high amounts of dairy. Um, And this this is not an allergy. It's just a mechanism where you're producing excess um, sebum and then that's becoming infected. Um, On the converse, anything that's anti-inflammatory and much lower in the sugars, so lower carbs, um, would actually be very, very beneficial and um, so what we're looking at there is much more vegetables, much more um, slow releasing starchy vegetables for the carbs, leaner proteins, more fish, more plant based proteins like the beans and pulses. All of those have been more associated in the studies with um, reduced acne and, um, and reduced sebum. I mean, there are certain nutrients you can take as in supplements, but you really need to get the diet right first. Yes, I completely agree. And those are some very simple tips that people can apply quite easily um, from day to day. How do you think medicine will evolve as new research emerges in this area? I suppose in this case, the area of intolerances and sensitivities. Yeah, so I mean, I think, first of all, the, the medic profession is, is progressing much more into what we call individualized medicine. Um, a a much more personal approach. So we know that with most cases of health conditions, whether that's allergies or something else, that there is an interaction between our genes, what we're born with, and also our environment. Um, So what I'm doing a lot more with clients is we do a lot of what we call genetic um, SNP testing um, to look at your individual predisposition. And that then is influenced by your food and your environment, your lifestyle. And I think medicine is much more moving now into what we call personalized medicine, personalized approach. So that, you know, what works for one person may well not work for someone else. 
Um, so I think there's much more of an individualized approach. And the, I mean, the, the other area in sort of allergies in particular is the area of immunotherapy, uh, which is still very much in its infancy, but there are universities that are doing trials, particularly with peanuts now, um, to try and almost sensitize the body um, into coping with small amounts of the offending food. Um, and that's, I think, going to be an area which will um, improve in terms of the amount of research going into that as well. Um, so I think the more personalised approach is going to become much more important. Fantastic. And secondly, how can we integrate, I suppose, complementary and alternative medical professionals into our healthcare system? And do you think this should happen? I think that, again, we're faced with such a burden in our society of poor health, which is crippling the NHS, which we all know, um, the rise in obesity, the rise in metabolic syndrome, the rise in diabetes, and also an aging population where you've got, um, you know, people living longer, but not necessarily healthier, um, means that, you know, the NHS is not going to cope without interventions which involve much more of our daily lifestyle and the food that we're eating. And until we make that connection between what we put on our fork has a profound effect on your health day in, day out, we're never really going to help with the, these long-term um, rising costs on the NHS and the burden, which a lot of them are lifestyle and um, influence conditions yes um so i think that you know that awareness is growing there's no question about that uh, doctors are um much more open to advising now on lifestyle and food choices um but obviously they can't do everything themselves and that's where we need a much more integrated approach where um people are referred perhaps to a dietitian or a nutritionist uh, maybe someone who can also support with stress reduction and so on as well, so that there are three or four people working together on one person. Um, that's really going to be the long-term solution to you know the burden that we have now with things like the NHS and so on. It won't be able to cope. And and also I think the realization that you know, the food choices that we eat, the lifestyle choices that we eat on a daily basis do have a profound effect on, on our health. And, and that's very powerful because that is something we can do something about. And finally, can you provide the listeners with three tips to help improve their own health and also the child's health? Right. OK. So the <laughs> first thing I would say, I mean, with a, with a, a parent, if you are a parent, the first thing is always to lead by example. I would say if there's just change one thing at a time. Don't start thinking, right, I've got to overhaul the whole cupboard, the whole house, everything's got to change. It doesn't. Just do one thing at a time. The first thing I would say is that start them with a good breakfast. So if we're looking particularly at children, don't send them off to school on an empty stomach. Make sure there's some protein, um, some slow-releasing carbs, so it could be eggs on toast or something, um, to set them off to school that's the first thing get them started in the day and for you as well you know always start the day off with something nutritious and nourishing so that it then sets you on a good pattern for the rest of the day with children um you need to make sure that um 
if you are, if they're small and you are giving them snacks, that those snacks count, that they're nutritious, that they're not just empty calories just to tie them over before dinner, that they count. So it could just be a few nuts, it could be an oat cake, it could be, um, you know, a piece of fruit with some yogurt, for example, not empty calories. Um, if you're a parent, um, one of the first things I would say that you could do for your own health is to do what's called time-restricted eating, which is where you stop eating at around about 6 or 7 in the evening and you go 12 to 14 hours of no food. That has been shown to have such a profound effect on things like insulin sensitivity, digestive health, liver function, kidney function, that that can have a profound effect on health markers. Um, so, it, so rather than sort of you know late night snacking, stop. You can still drink in the evening, but don't be snacking constantly. And um, so, do time restricted eating. Start uh, your morning uh, with a, a good nourishing breakfast, particularly for your children. And if your children are snacking, make them really nourishing. Make them count. Three excellent bits of advice there. Now, Christine, I've really enjoyed our conversation. You've certainly shared some excellent tips, which I'm sure many people will put into practice. But before you go, can you tell people where to find you and what events you have coming up? Yeah, thank you, Ben. So I have a wealth of recipes, which are all free on my website, actually, if people are interested in allergies. Um, It's www.christinebailey.co.uk. I'm also on Instagram and post a lot of um, little short recipe videos on there as well, which is Christine M. Bailey. And uh, in terms of courses, I actually have a wealth of courses coming up at the Willow, which is um, just outside Kingston upon Thames. And we've got a whole range, everything from nutrition and cancer to things like anxiety, depression, child um, health, um, menopause, hormonal problems. We do a whole range of open training um, and nutrition days, and they're open to everyone. And they will also include um, a two-course meal at the end, which is always very nice. <laughs> um, and I'm also um, around the whole of the UK doing uh, cookery demo seminars, presentations. Um, pretty busy, actually. Well, everything that you just mentioned there, I'll be sure to put in the details in the show notes for the listeners. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I really do hope that we can speak again soon. I'm sure we will. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. 